All right. I just want you guys to know I am aware that she is only eight months old. Okay? My daughter is not even nine months old yet. I get that. And at the risk of sounding like one of those parents who just says, oh, my kid's awesome, let me just say, my kid's awesome. All right? She, every day, seems to learn something new. And it's, seriously, if you don't believe me that she's awesome, just ask her mom. She'll tell you the same story. That way you know it's not just me, okay? She's awesome. But one of the things that she's already learned is tone of voice. She may not know what the word means, but she understands if, if we sternly tell her something that it is different from the goo-goo-ga-ga that we normally do. So she understands tone of voice, especially when we tell her no. Now, I know what you're thinking. My Doberman Labrapoodle Doodle, whatever the, these crazy dog breeds are now, understands tone of voice as well. Your kid's really not that awesome. And to you, I would say, you're wrong and stop stealing my thunder. But Nora has gotten to where she can basically crawl anywhere. It used to be just on carpet. She could get some traction on the carpet, and she could move around there. But we have hardwood in our, our floors at home as well, and that kind of was the boundary. Well, she's moved past that now. And actually, it's probably working out better because she still kind of scoots on her stomach, and that's slick, so it's like, this is how it looks. She keeps one foot in the air and pushes off with one. It's awesome. I, don't, I have already said that she's awesome. I don't, anyway, I just want to make that clear. But anyway, so she can crawl wherever she wants to go now. She has this undeniable fascination with cords. Don't let her loose in here because we got cords laying around everywhere. But she loves going to any cords that are plugged in, anything that she can reach. If it's a cord, she wants it. And we obviously don't want her to do that. Those aren't safe. So we tell her no. And by we, I mean I because I'm not sure Stephanie knows what no means yet in regards to Nora. I'm not entirely sure she's even trying to learn. But I tell her no. I sternly say, Nora, no. Now, Nora will be reaching for something kind of in slow motion, and I see where she's going, right? She's reaching out like this, and I'll say, Nora, no. And before she even looks up, she'll get this huge smile. She'll go, <laughs> and then turn and stare at me, and then we just have a staring contest. That's all it is. If I don't show up to church one day, it's because we're still engaged in a staring contest, and I'm not going to lose. I can't show weakness this early in life, or she's going to walk all over me all the way through, but she'll just stare at me. Now... I understand, again, she doesn't really know what the word no means. She understands the tone of my voice. But she has actually gotten pretty good at reaching for something. I sternly tell her no. She moves and crawls towards something else. Usually it's just another cord, but that's beside the point. Okay. I also understand, being eight months old, almost nine, that she is not cognitively processing cause and effect. Oh, if I grab this cord, I might get electrocuted. Uh, I get that, okay? I also get that she is not realizing that I have her best interest at heart. She just hears tone of voice, knows that we don't want her to do that, has seen us say this word no and move her away from something, and she's kind of made a connection there. Hey, they don't want me to touch whatever it is I'm about to touch. However, as she grows older, I do hope that she starts to understand something. I do hope that she starts processing why I'm telling her no or why I'm steering her away from something and that the more she feels loved by me and Stephanie, if she ever learns to tell her no, but the more she feels loved, the more she will actually want to obey. That she will see, these people love me. They have my best interests at heart. That makes me have a desire to do what they say because it's not just them being a party pooper. They're actually looking out for my best interests. They actually want what's best for me. This is the message that Peter is trying to deliver to us. He's trying to drive it home to us in this letter. He is hoping to foster a desire for his hearers, for us, 
his, the readers here to obey because we are incredibly loved. We can look at God and say, He loves us so much, therefore I actually have a desire to be holy when He is holy. Not just that I have to, but that what it says here in the last week's sermon and in the verses preceding this is that we are obedient children. Like we want to obey God because we know He loves us so much. And this is what Peter is trying to drive home here, and he's going to continue that and then give us more reasons why we should want to obey because of the love that God has. So this morning, I'm going to read verses 17 through 21, and then I'll try to show you exactly what, what I mean by that. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, it says, And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in him." Now, we don't have time to read the entire chapter, but we've been preaching through it. So if you've been with us, then you know kind of where we've been. But Peter has given us some really good news. He's using an ancient form of the criticism sandwich. Everybody know what that is? Anybody? If you've been in any form of leadership or if you've had a boss in any way at any time give you some negative feedback on something, you've probably been exposed to the criticism sandwich. What that is is the idea that if you're going to give some bad news to someone or you're going to give some criticism to someone, that you sandwich that with two good things. So it looks like this. Hey, Sally, I really like those shoes. You're totally fired. Have you lost weight? See ya. Drop the mic. Walk away. You sandwich the bad news of being fired with good shoes, lost weight. Those are good things, right? That's what Peter is doing here, kind of. <laughs> Not exactly. But he is, in a real way, trying to buffer the quote-unquote bad news or the harder to hear news with good news so we see it play out in the like I said in the previous verses he's saying if God chose you he elected you he predestined you for salvation and that salvation cannot be undone it is imperishable it is kept in uh, heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit not by your power by God's power it cannot be undone then last week we saw this call to be holy which is not an easy task that's not great news that we have to live up to this holiness of God now he is he is saying that now this week he's saying we should live in fear which sounds even worse and again this isn't bad news it just seems harder to take than hey you're saved and it's awesome and no nothing you can do can lose that salvation but it does seem a little bit more difficult to to hear that and then say okay now you have to be holy and you have to live in fear so he closes it out with more good news and we will see that in verses 18 through 21 so we have the good news of salvation, the quote-unquote not-so-good news of living holy and fearfully, and then the good news of what God did to save us. Criticism sandwich. Everybody got that? All right, so let's look at verse 17. And after all this assurance that Peter has led us to believe, he says two things that seem to contradict what he has just written, right? Your, your salvation is imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading. But it's, it says, if you call on him who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Being judged by your deeds. Does that sound like good news to anyone in here? 
If you raise your hand, come to me afterward, I'll remind you of some of your deeds, and then you won't be raising your hand next week for that question, okay? This isn't good news. If we are literally going to be judged by our deeds, we're not going to stack up. Our good is not going to outweigh our bad enough to be holy. Our good is not going to outweigh our bad enough to be saved. None of those things are going to happen if it is literally our deeds that are being judged. This sounds super scary until you remember what Peter has just said in the previous verses. He says that we have been born again to a living hope. We are new creations. The old has passed away. The new has come. And that new is Jesus living inside of us. So yes, we will be judged according to our deeds, but our, deeds are, our bad deeds are taken away. Our sins are removed by the blood of Jesus and our, His righteousness is placed upon us. So when the end times come, like Peter is talking about here, when we will be judged, we have no reason to fear that. Because again, our salvation is undefiled. It's imperishable. It cannot be undone. It is sealed. It is stamped. It is finished. So then he says something else that seems to contradict. It says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Why, Peter, why, are we, why do we have to live fearfully? And he, you've just spent all this time assuring us that we have nothing to fear, that our salvation is assured, that you have kept it for us, that you are holding it. So let's look at what he's really saying. Okay? First, let's look at the parameters of this fear. It says specifically that you should live in fear throughout the time of your exile. Not forever, eternity, just throughout your time of exile. We have looked in the previous verses that we, as Peter writes here, as Christians, as believers, are the elect exiles. This is not our home. This world is not our eternal home. We are here for a time. Our life is like a vapor, as Proverbs tells us. And then we move on and we go to our true home. And that is when we no longer have to live in fear. That's the good news that this fear is not never-ending. We don't have to live this way for eternity. It's just while we are exiled here on earth. This is also not saying that we walk around scared that the big bad God is going to get us every time we mess up. Every time we sin, He's not there to smash us into the ground just because we've messed up. That's not what He's saying at all. Now, if you've grown up in church, or even if you haven't, you may have even heard this, but many times when we see the word fear in Scripture, if it's referring to fearing God or fearing the Lord or any of those things, most people tell you that that is a healthy reverence for. So you fear Him in a way of you, you are in awe of God. You revere Him. You treat Him as He is, almighty, all-knowing, completely different from us. So we fear Him in the way that He is just completely different than who we are and what we are. And I do believe that there is an element of that here, okay? I do believe that that is some of what Peter is saying, but to say that he only means that when he says to live in fear, I believe would be to oversimplify the matter. What I think, though, is that the fear we see here is twofold, and the twofold fear that we will, we will discuss here in just a second leads us to a healthy reverence for God. That living this way will make us realize that God is completely different. That will make us realize that we should live in awe and reverence of Him. And therefore, this fear is, is, like I said, twofold. So let's look at what I mean. Let me attempt to show you what I mean. The Greek word, original, in the original Greek, the word here for fear is phobos, maybe. <laughs> it's, I don't know if it's pronounced that way. It is definitely phobos, phobos, whatever. Okay? This is where we get the word 
phobia. Okay? Everybody knows what the word phobia means. It means to avoid or to run away from. If, you're a, if you are scared of germs, you are a germaphobe, right? If you are scared of spiders, you are a arachnophobe, or you have arachnophobia in a really bad movie named after that. Todd, Hazel, Laura Baker, and myself suffer from a very cute a case of ophidiophobia. And if anybody knows this well, that is the fear of snakes. Why they couldn't call it snakeophobia, I don't know. But it's called ophidiophobia. And I don't know why you guys are laughing at us. Satan was a snake, need I remind you. But anyway, that is the root word here in Greek. It means to put to flight by terrifying. Now, it can also be used just as the, re the reverence, the revere. But usually when it, when it means just to revere God, it says live in fear of the Lord or live in fear of God. This verse doesn't say that. It just says live in fear while you are exiled. It does not add on of God. Now, again, I think this, this truth leads us to that reverence. But let me show you, okay? So the root, root word means to avoid or to run from, okay? I believe that what Peter is getting at here is that we should love God so much because of the truth of our salvation that he has just gone over, being totally his work before time began, and because it is him who is keeping it safe for us, not us, not our actions, not our deeds, that we literally have a phobia for sin, that we hate sin. If you bring a snake in here, I'm at least behind that curtain. Maybe farther, I may be outside. It depends on if I have a clean getaway or not, okay? This is how we should approach sin. We should hate sin so much that we want to be holy, that we want to be obedient children, that we are in such awe of who God is, that we should be so reverent of God that we fear Him, we fear sin, we fear the displeasure that God has for sin, and we fear the discipline that comes, okay? This current dwelling place should not make us as scared as offending God. Job 28, 28 says, Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. You see, rightly understanding sin in its, in its proper context, rightly understanding how much God hates sin in any way, that He cannot even look at it, rightly understanding that God has ransomed us by His own power based on nothing we have done or can do, should make us fear this world much, much less. When we compare it to God, ridicule, ostracism, pain, death should look like small potatoes. It should not matter. We should not be fearful of what this world can do. It is better to suffer for not sinning than to sin and offend God. We should be more fearful of offending God than offending culture. We should have a phobia for sin, a phobia for God's discipline. We don't want those things. Even though discipline can be sanctifying, it would be better to just be sanctified without the sin part, right? Sin brings the discipline, and we want to have a phobia for those things. We want to be fearful of those things. We don't want to do those things. And you see it as a healthy, reverent fear of God that should drive us to love Him more. And that is why you see Peter go on here to tell us more reasons why we should love Him. He doesn't just say, live in fear. All right, figure that out for yourself. He tells us why we should love Him more and why we should revere Him. We know what, that God possesses wrath for sin. We can read about that. We know He hates sin. We know that we deserve that wrath. 
Because we can see all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's us. The wages of sin is death. That's us. We know we deserve it. And we know just how bad it can be. Read the Old Testament. Earthly wrath of God is, is bad, guys. We don't want that. But instead of leveling that wrath against us for being sinners, he pours that out on Jesus. And we view this in its proper context. Proverbs 9.10 says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. That doesn't mean we are scared of God. That doesn't mean it is wise to be terrified of God. It means that when we view God in his proper context, when we view God for who he really is, we should have a reverence for him. We should be in awe of him. The fact that he would do this for us sinners and in his grace should save us, it should, it should make us be in awe. How, how can he do this? How could he possibly look at me and see that I am of any value whatsoever to do what he has done to save me? When I was much younger, uh, I had a healthy fear of my father. And by younger, I mean like last week because <laughs> he's kind of a big guy. But anyway, he wasn't abusive. He didn't beat me. I wasn't scared of my dad. He was actually a great father, remains being a great father to this day. And I would even tell him that if he was sitting here. But he did spank me, and it did hurt, okay? I'm not going to sugarcoat that. But that wasn't the worst part of the punishment. That was over in a minute. And then it hurt for a little while. Couldn't sit down for an hour, I don't know. And then we move on with life. So it, it wasn't the spanking that was the worst part of the punishment. It was the speech before the spanking, hearing that I had disappointed my father. That he was not proud of me in this moment, or whatever I had done did not make him proud. I, I wanted my dad, I still want my dad to be proud of me and not disappointed of me. And that is what helped me behave, or at least get better at hiding my bad behavior, whichever it was. But it, it at least gave me a healthy reverence, it gave me a healthy fear of my father. But it, I wasn't fearful of him hurting me. I was more fearful of me hurting him. I loved my father, I respected my father and I, didn't, I wanted to spare him of those feelings of being disappointed in me, of having this whole speech, this is going to hurt me worse than it's going to hurt you. When I was little, I was like, no, it ain't, because this hurts. And I don't think you're going crying in your room. He might have been, I don't think so. But I understand what he's saying, especially now that I have a daughter. Of, that's what he means by it hurt. It, it hurt him to be disappointed in me to the point of having to punish me like that. This is the fear we should approach God with. Not fearful of judgment. We have already seen in these previous verses that it, our salvation is a sure thing. If we have been saved by God, it is a sure thing. Our inheritance cannot be defiled. It is not perishable. It does not fade. Now, that does not mean God will not discipline us. Discipline is sanctifying, and he will do that. So why should we live in fear then? Well, if you couple this with the command we saw last week, be holy for I am holy, we will quickly see. If you or I or anyone claims to be a Christian and you are simply living however you want, completely ignoring and disregarding God's commands, disregarding this command to be holy as I am holy, why would you think your inheritance is being kept? Why would you think you have an inheritance at all? If you couldn't care less what God has told you to do and you're just living however you want to live, what part of that promise applies to you? The unfading, the undefiled. It, it doesn't apply if you are living in a way that is actively against God. This doesn't mean you won't slip up. There's a difference between sinning and practicing sin. 
Later in this very letter, Peter will tell us, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So we have been given freedom in Christ, and yet he tells us to use that freedom to serve. Because we love God for purchasing that freedom for us so much that we turn around and serve Him with the freedom that we have been given. Not, you've been given freedom in Christ, go do whatever you want. Galatians 5.13 says basically the same thing. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Again, you have been given freedom, purchased by the blood of Christ. Not purchased by your deeds. You have been given freedom Use it to serve one another. Use it to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. Use it to serve. Use that freedom to serve, not to live however you want with disregard for what God has commanded you to do. We must live as holy, set apart, not looking like the world, but looking more and more like God. This is the kind of people we must be. It is this fear that keeps the aforementioned faith, hope, and love intact. It is living in fear of sin, living in fear of the displeasure of God, living in fear that we are offending the almighty creator of the universe. This is why we are told in Philippians to work out our, our salvation with fear and trembling. This doesn't mean you work for your salvation. This means once you have been saved, you have been given this freedom that is purchased by someone else. Use it to work out your salvation, to become more like Christ every single day. Because we will see in chapter 5 of this letter, the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And if we let our guard down, we're lunch. If we say, it doesn't matter, I can do whatever I want. I have freedom in Christ. Then we're towing the line and asking, how far can I go? Can I go this far? Okay, what about this far? How close to the lion's mouth can I get? And then we are not conducting ourselves with the proper fear, the proper awe, the proper I am not holy like God is holy. We are not conducting ourselves in the way Peter has just told us to conduct ourselves, to live holy lives every single day. We don't have a phobia for sin if we're towing the line. How close to sin can I get? Can I get this close? Okay, nothing happened. Can I get this close? Nothing happened. That's not a phobia for sin. Again, bring a snake in here. I don't go, is he going to get me? Is he going to get me? No, I'm out. Okay? And people that don't like spiders, they run from them. My wife will call me from the other end of the house. Kill this spider. You have shoes on. I, anyway, we can look back over our own lives, though, and see when we've towed the line. And we can see it time and time again where towing the line didn't work out. So maybe we could go that far, and it was not sin. And yet, we get that far, and we realize our good intentions too often fail, and we go across the line. Our resolve is too often not strong enough, and we go across the line. Our desires are too strong for sin or too weak for God, as it may be, and we go across the line. And you're thinking, but pastor, we just heard that our salvation is assured. We can't lose it by crossing that line, right? And I want you guys to listen to me very closely today. This is going to be hard to hear, and you may not agree with it. And if you don't, come talk to me afterward, and we'll hash it out. But without a proper fear of sinning, Without a proper, reverent fear of God and His displeasure for sin, you have no assurance. If you're living life all willy-nilly, disregarding what God is saying, and that is your way of life, you are practicing sin. No, I know this is sin, and I do not care. You have no assurance. This assurance does not 
apply to you, if you are freely sinning and expecting God to just overlook it because you are a son or daughter of God, then you need to re-examine and see where this phobia of sin, or get this phobia for sin, this fear of sin, this fear of God's displeasure for sin. You see, too many times we seem to fear the displeasure of this world more than the displeasure of the Almighty Creator of this world. We care what people think. We care what people are going to say about us. We care that we may lose our job or we may lose some clients or we may lose this or, or not gain that. So we fear this world more than we fear God. But we can look back over the years and see many, many, many stories of people that didn't. Martyrs who were led to the stake. Martyrs who were led to the fire, to the cross. We look back in the book of Daniel, we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego willingly go to a furnace, not knowing what would happen. They even say, God will save us, maybe, and if he doesn't, we're okay with that too, but we are not going to bow to you. Because they understood, even though it wasn't written yet, Luke 12, 4 and 5, it says, I tell you, friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. They were perfectly willing to stare an earthly king in the face and say, no, we are not going to follow your commands. We are going to follow the true king. We fear him more than we fear you. And whatever happens in that furnace, happens in that furnace. And that's fine. We don't care. Because God can save us even if he doesn't. And we know that to be true. We fear him more than we fear you. So if you want assurance, if you want these first verses to apply to you, you don't have to earn it. That's not what I'm saying. But if you want to live in a, in a way that you no longer have to fear the judgment of God, the end time judgment of God, live in fear now of sin. Live in fear now of his discipline and his displeasure of God. That way you don't have to live in fear when that day comes. Live in fear of sin now. But like I said, criticism sandwich, Peter places this truth in between two good truths. He goes on to tell us why living in this fear should bring us joy, why we should even care about what God thinks or about his displeasure for sin or his, his discipline, why we should want to be holy as he is holy, and why we should fear God more than we fear the world. Look at verses 18 and 19. It says, knowing, so this knowledge leads to, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. Peter is reminding them and us where we have come from. To be ransomed means to be bought back. God bought us back from the slavery of sin or the futile ways inherited from our forefathers. He purchased our freedom. Peter is reminding them that the reason they should live with a healthy fear of sin and in awe of God is because they were once slaves to sin and they are no longer slaves to sin because God has purchased them from that slavery. He is saying, look back. Look at the broken promises sin has made you. Sin promised you this, and it did not deliver. But God can deliver. God can keep your salvation for you. God's power can remove you from that slavery so that you never want to go back. You want to obey Him. You want to move forward in holiness. You want to live forward in this way of life because God has saved you from the old way of life. Again, that does not mean you will never sin again, 
That means you will never be a slave to sin again. You will never want that life more than you want this life. See, we willingly became a slave to sin, but God in His infinite mercy has purchased our freedom. It's not that we earned our way out or we escaped this, this slavery of sin. His love compelled Him to free us from that. This means we are twice owned by God. He created us first. He owns us. He created us. Then after we ran from Him to the slavery of sin, He purchased us back. We are doubly owned by God, and we should be in awe of that, that He was willing to, pur to purchase us twice, that He was willing to own us twice. It is when we forget this that we fail to live with a proper fear of sin. It is when we forget that it is God saving us and not us freeing ourselves from this bondage that we fail to live with a healthy reverence for God and what He has done. Peter is saying that remembering this is what keeps you living this way until the day of judgment. Then you can relax. Remember, the fear only lasts until our exile is over. So when the day of judgment comes, if you are living this way, if you have been saved by God and He has kept your salvation for you, and you have lived in all of that the rest of your life since the time that it happened, day of judgment comes, no more fear. You can relax. But not until then. We live in this constant state of not scaredness, but fear of the displeasure of God in awe of who God is. But to me, when I first read this, I was like, that seems a little backwards, right? Like, shouldn't it be the unbelievers that live in fear of God? Like, he's going to smack them down because they are basically just flipping him off and saying, we don't care, like, we know this is wrong, we're going to go this way anyway. Shouldn't they be the ones to live in fear? And eventually, I would say yes, absolutely. They should fear the day of judgment. But right now, they, they do not have the knowledge it requires to live in this fear. L look at what it says. It says, knowing, where is it? Knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways inherited from your few forefathers. They are still blinded by their sin. They are still blinded by the slavery they live in. They are still willingly living in that slavery. They don't have this knowledge. They don't have what it takes to live in this fear. So, of course, we shouldn't expect them to live in fear. That is why it is us who are called. It is knowing that truth that makes us live in the reverent awe of God. They don't have that truth. So how can they live in fear? Alistair McGrath puts it this way. It says, this is the madness of the sinner, that he fancies liberty in what is the worst situation. Those poor, frantic people, lying in rags, bound in chains, still manage to imagine that they are kings. They think that their irons are chains of gold, their rags are robes, and their filthy living place a palace. This is why it is us who are called to live in fear, because we know who God is. We know what God has done. They are not in exile. We are the ones in exile because we have a future home to go to and we are not there yet. Peter is reminding us of our worth here. Peter is reminding us that he is telling us that we are valuable to God, not because of who we are, but because who he is and what he is doing through Jesus Christ. We should live set apart because he has given us infinite value. Not that we earned infinite value. He has given us infinite, eternal value. Look at verse 18b and 19. It says, we were ransomed, but not with perishable things like gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Christ. I don't know about you, but that makes me feel pretty valuable. It makes me think that God has a better plan for my life than living in bondage for the rest of my life. That he has 
purchase my freedom this way so I should live with a desire to please him, with a desire to be holy because he has valued me enough. It says here we weren't bought with gold and silver, which we look at as pretty valuable. We look at gold and silver as two of the more valuable things on this planet. And Peter makes sure to use the word perishable when talking about these things. No matter how valuable these earthly things are, they have no eternal value. We cannot take gold and silver with us. It, in essence, has zero eternal value. You may have a, live the high life here, but there is no eternal value to gold and silver. But he goes on to say that we were ransomed by the precious blood of Christ. This is where we receive our value. We are not valuable on our own, but given the blood of Christ, given the Spirit of God living inside of us for the rest of our days because of this assurance, this is what gives us eternal value. This is why we should live in fear of displeasing God because He has deemed us valuable enough to spend the blood of His Son as currency to buy us back. To turn around and live in slavery of sin again willingly would be to spit on that purchase. It would be to devalue the purchase price paid for our freedom. Uh, propaganda is a Christian rapper slash spoken word guy. Some of you think I just blasphemed because I said Christian and rap in the same sentence. I promise it can be done. See, a Christian rapper, and in his song Lofty, I wish I could just play it for you because it is, it is excellent, but in his song Lofty, he says this, Worth, value, and beauty is not determined by some innate quality, but by the length for which the owner would go to possess them. And broken and ugly things just like us are stamped excellent with ink tapped in wells of divine veins. A system of redemption that could only be described as perfect. A seal of approval. Fatal debt removal. Promised, permanent, perfect priest. Brilliant design system. Redemption for our kinsmen can only be described as perfect with excellent execution. And I am in awe. The only one truly excellent. The only source of excellent. We are declared excellent only by His decree with His system. And the only accurate response is all. See, Peter is saying that it is in this view. It is in the view of what God has done for us. What He has paid to show us our value that we should live in fear. It is in view of this that we should be in reverent awe of God. Why? Oh, why would He do this? Why would he spend his son's blood to purchase us from our freedom when we willingly walked into slavery? That is why we are, should live in awe. We are stamped worthy by God himself, by the blood of Jesus. So fear this God more than you fear this world. Fear his displeasure because of the lengths that he has gone to possess us. We should desire to obey because he loves us this much. Then in verse 20 and 21, this is why we can maintain our assurance of salvation. So remember the sandwich here. We have been given salvation. It is assured till the day of judgment. There is nothing that can be done. Then we have lived this way because of that. And then we have the reason for the maintenance of our assurance. This is why we can continue to live that way. It says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. We can maintain this assurance because Jesus was plan A. There was no backup plan. There was no first plan that didn't work and then Jesus came along. 
He was planned from eternity past. It says he was, what does it say? He was foreknown from the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, God knew what he was going to do, and yet he went through it anyway. He knew what we were going to do in response to that, and yet he went through with it anyway. Jesus knew what was going to happen. He knew we were going to turn our backs and report to slavery instead of to him, and yet he went through with it anyway. He became flesh and still poured out his blood so that we could be ransomed. So we could see God for who he really is. We could live the rest of our days in reverent fear of him who did this. We could live the rest of our days as ones ransomed instead of blindly living in slavery and thinking that we are kings, thinking we are free to do whatever we want. This was the plan, and it was carried out with perfect precision. And then when we see that this plan was carried out just as promised, we can look back and go, well, he made another promise, and he kept that one. Jesus died and was raised from the dead. So when it says here we, we see him resurrected, this is why we can have assurance that he will keep these promises that our faith will not fade, that our salvation is imperishable because he raised Jesus from the dead, he must be keeping these promises as well. We know all of this to be true because we have seen Jesus resurrected. We know he lives inside of us. We know that this is true because we don't go on practicing sin. We don't go on living this lifestyle of forget you, God, I'm going to do whatever I want because I'm going to be me. That's not how we live. We know this to be true because we have a healthy fear of God and his displeasure for sin. We have an awe of him and what he has done. The fact that we even care what God thinks is reason to believe that we have been ransomed. Because if you look around the world, there's a lot of people that do not care. I don't know if they know what they're doing is wrong or they don't even know. But either way, they couldn't care less what God is thinking of them or what God's opinion of them. The fact that we do care is sign one that we have been ransomed. Now may we wake up every day and live that way. So in this room, if you have been saved, you have been freed to fear. Not from fear. You've been freed to fear. You have been freed from not caring and doing whatever you want. You have been freed to understand that we do not answer to this culture. We do not answer to any earthly authority above God. We answer to the almighty creator of the universe first and foremost. And this should make us fear him more than we fear the world. And it goes on to say at the very end there, and this is where the most assurance comes from, it says, it, it says our faith and hope are in God, not our ability to keep up with this, not our ability to checklist our holiness every day. Our faith and hope are in God. So when you see yourself struggle with sin or when you slip up and you can, you can look to this and remember that your hope is in God, not your ability to keep yourself in this salvation. Your hope and faith are in the author and finisher of your faith. He started it. He's going to finish it. So while we strive to be holy, we're never going to make the mark on our own. While we strive to live in fear and to live in awe of God, we're going to mess it up from time to time. It is God who holds us up. It is only by the blood of Jesus that we can be deemed holy to a Father who judges impartially by each one's deeds. So may we fear God. May we be in awe of His works. May we live in awe of who He is and what He has done. And may we never cease to strive to be holy, even though we know we're not going to make it 100%. We strive to be more Christ-like in all that we do, but may we also rest in this assurance. 
May we rest in the fact that He has saved us. He is keeping our salvation. He has ransomed us. And He is the one that hit the mark for us. And then He gifted us that righteousness. Now, if you are still in the bondages of sin this morning, and you can now see that, if you walked in here thinking, I'm good, and this has revealed to you that you are actually a slave, that you are in the bondages of sin, and you are no long, not a king, and you want to be ransomed from that slavery, please come talk to me or Pastor Eric before you leave, and we will be glad to talk to you for the rest of the day, the rest of the week, if that's what it takes, to convince you to be and to live in awe of God. But if you are in this place today, and you have been ransomed by the precious blood of Jesus, and you do stand here a free man or free woman because of what God has done, then I'm going to ask you, if you would, to stand with me and worship. Go ahead, sorry, stand now. <laughs> Stand with me and worship in awe of who He is, in awe of what He has done, in reverence for Him, in reverence for who He has done. Not what you have done in this place. Not because you made the decision to follow Jesus, but because He made the decision to save you from slavery. May we worship Him in awe. Let me pray, and then we're going to worship. <coughs> Father, may we come to You this morning in fear and in awe and in reverence of You. May we never look to our...